Brian Raftery, writing for The Ringer, described the film noir genre as comprising primarily, quote, gnarly little stories about gnarly little people, some of whom are more relatable than viewers cared to admit. Lori Roy's short story, Chum in the Water, which appeared in the Tampa Bay edition of Akashic Books noir series in 2020, fits that mold. And there are sharks too, no spoiler there. I'm joined today by two-time Edgar Award winner Lori Roy to talk about Chum in the Water, her ideas about noir in literature, and more. I'm Christopher Nank, and welcome to the Florida Book Club. here with Lori Roy, winner of two Edgar Awards and author of the 2018 novel The Disappearing, and more relevant to this episode, author of the short story Chum in the Water, which appeared in last year's anthology Tampa Bay Noir from Akashic Books, which has published dozens, if not over a hundred, uh, noir series from various cities. So, and they're all worth checking out too. Um, so welcome to the Florida Book Club, Lori. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to join you today. Okay. Well, the pleasure is all mine. So um, how did you become involved with Tampa Bay Noir? Um, you know, was this a story that you had written specifically for this project or, uh, you know, was it solicited or? Uh, yes, uh, Colette Bancroft of the Tampa Bay Times uh, book reviewer for the Tampa Bay Times, among other things, was asked to edit the, this edition of the noir series by Akashic Books. And um, I've known Colette now for probably better than 10 years. And she asked me, among other authors from the Tampa Bay area, to contribute. And I was happy to do so. So I did write the story specifically for the, uh, for the Tampa Bay Noir and for Colette. Okay. Do you write a lot of short stories? I feel like in this genre, like crime, mystery, you know, it seems like a very novel-centric genre. So I, I was curious, like, how much of your writing is in short fiction? Um, I, I, I wrote actually three short stories around the time I also wrote this one for Akashic. It just so happened that I was asked to contribute to various things. But other than that, I don't write a lot of short stories. They're they're very difficult to write, for one thing. <laughs> um, and what has generally happened, not not yet with the Tampa Bay Noir um, story, but they generally balloon into something bigger, like a novel, <laughs> uh, somewhere down the road. So. And, it, and it's a good way to maybe test out a different point of view or the idea for a character. But I, I, I have to say they are not my favorite thing to do. Oh, that's too bad. I love short stories. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, the late Octavia Butler, uh, the author of Blood Child, she, uh, she had one collection of short stories in her lifetime. And she said something in the introduction, like these were the only ones that I was set that she said, oh, yeah, OK, these are fine. Like everything else. It's like you're saying she said wanted to turn into a novel or a trilogy or a series. And, and mm -hmm. you know, it was it was very hard for her to just say, OK, this is good enough with uh, with these. So, OK, 
Switch, switching gears a little bit, I mean, obviously, I would love to come back and just talk about how cool short stories mm-hmm. are, but um, I was curious what the idea of noir means to you. Um, you know, last season, I had a discussion with someone about the term gothic, you know, and how that that is sort of applied to to various, you know, across genres and, 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 and to various types of stories. So... Um, I don't know. Is is that a a appellation that that uh, you feel applies to your work in general? And what what is your idea of of noir? Well, I I would say the gothic, as in specifically, and with my most recent novels, Southern Gothic. Um, you mentioned the disappearing, gone too long, uh, let me die in his footsteps. My up, the one I'm just finishing. Those, I think, the, the term Southern Gothic applies to. And to. Noir, to me, is a different animal in that when, when I think about a, a story, be it a novel or a short story, I, I kind of think if two, two things are going on. You have a character that wants something, and, and the plot is that character setting about to try to get that. So to think of like a kind of a simple example, you have a detective who wants to solve a crime. And as he sets about to solve that crime, that's the engine that's driving the novel forward and driving the reader to turn the page. Then you have what the character needs. And that's more akin to the theme of the book. Um, again something simple do they need to you know realize that without family in their life they'll never be happy that's sort of a just a a simple example so if you you take those two things the want and the need and in in a happily ever after story the character gets what they want although that may change throughout the book and they also get what they need they achieve this thing in the, their greater need in life. In a tragedy, they get what they want, but in doing so, it precludes them from getting what they need. In noir, they don't get what they want and they don't get what they need. They lose on all fronts. Um, that's how I think about it. So in you know, these noir stories, you're, you're going to see some people who are, who are a little bit down and out, and you probably end up that way at the end of the story as well. <laughs> oh, I, that, well said. I, uh, there was just an article on The Ringer, uh, it's a kind of sports and pop culture website, uh, about uh, 1990s noir, how it sort of had a revival, like with movies like The Usual Suspects and Basic Instinct and Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. And was sort of making a distinction between those noir stories and the ones from the their ancestors in the 1940s and 50s and how you know they were racier and bloodier and how it was it was um saying how like evil seemed to triumph in most of them i that, that was the way this author yeah. put it but it was it was more of a i, I think a, bro, a you know a shorter way of saying and and he elaborated on this at some detail later on but that yeah, the there there was this lack of closure, or the closure, like you're saying, was very tragic, and and no one won, and there was like this lack of distinction between good and bad guys. Um, 
this quote said there, there were gnarly little stories about gnarly little people, some of whom were more relatable than viewers cared to admit and they lose, <laughs> you know, and, and, it yeah. was, uh, and yeah, you really put me in mind of, of that when you, uh, when you were explaining it, cause it seemed to align very closely with what, what this article is saying. Um, yeah, I think that that's probably what noir does best is makes us see ourselves in people that we'd rather not relate to. And and I feel like the the sort of classic noir stories from the you know the old black and white films and even you know books by like Dashiell Hammett or uh, James mm-hmm. M. Cain I I didn't feel like those maybe it's the time different you know the being removed by so many decades but they didn't feel as relatable I guess you know the the sort of private eyes and and people who seem to be from what I've read like people who are more at the margins of society and and I felt like. With a lot of the stories in Tampa Bay Noir, for instance, or some of the other collections, they seemed much more like everyday people or in some of the, the movies that uh, from the 90s that this author was discussing. So, um, Well, I think that makes them all the scarier. Yeah. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I, and, it, and it almost... Um, like I thought about Chum in the Water. I mean, it almost unfolds like a horror story in some ways. Yeah. You know, it was... It was I, I, on rereading it, I, I was kind of noticing some of those beats, you know, where I was like, this almost seems like a Stephen King story, the way the, the, the character arcs are going in some ways. Oh, well, I like that description. <laughs> no. So talking about Chum in the Water specifically, I, I was really curious about, you, you know, using Tierra Verde as a setting. I, um, it's not a place I would think of when imagining, you know, shady deals and loan sharks and stuff, but it was like... <laughs> I tried to convince my parents to get a condo there a while ago because I was like, yeah. I can't afford a place there, but maybe you could and I could go there. So uh. Yeah. Well, when, um, when Colette asked folks to contribute to the um, collection, and this is, I think this is traditionally done with, well, I know it is with the various editions of the Noir series. She asked each of us to sort of claim a neighborhood or a location. So, and then, so there wouldn't be any duplicates. And at the time we were living on Terra Verde and we, we did live there for 20 years. Oh, wow. And so that was the natural choice for me, you know, at Colette thought and I thought as well. And um, you're right. It's not, it's not at all the location that if I were sitting down to write that I would choose because I like a gritty setting. You know, I've, I've set a book in 1950s Detroit. I've set a book in the rural Kentucky, um, small town Georgia. I like a gritty setting that is in and of itself a, um, a challenge for the character. So with Tierra Verde, I, um, I leaned on some of the kind of local legend, I guess. There are all sorts of stories about, you know, gangster money that was on Terra Verde way back in the day and drug runners running drugs off their docks. And, you know, I don't know if any of it's true or not, but um, I kind of leaned into that, uh, into that idea. To and and I had done a lot of research 
I have yet to write the book, but I've done a lot of research on Ybor City and its history through the 20s, 40s, 50s. So I, I leveraged a little, I brought a little bit of that into my Terra Verde story through, um, I think his name was Santo Giordano. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I um, yeah, I guess for yeah, I, the only place I think I've ever been is to Billy Stone Crab <laughs> place as we're coming yeah. home from uh, Fort DeSoto or something. So it was really neat to see it in this light, you know, Tierra Verde. Is Smuggler's based on any actual bar or tavern there? Because I could totally um, picture the, like you're saying, yeah. these old regulars with like ancient lore about sharks and hurricanes and weird disappearances, you know, like you're saying. Um, yes, there is right there by Billy's, there is Smuggler's Barn. Oh, so it is a real place. Yeah, it is. Although I don't think there's any big drum sitting out front outside the front door <laughs> that was an artistic embellishment yes it was <laughs> certainly permissible i am kind of going on what we were saying we were talking about earlier i really liked dale your main character like i i could kind of somewhat relate to him in a in a, in a sense uh you know he seems like a very sort of exaggerated version of like like typical male confidence in some ways and things well, like that. He, well, he you might, said it, not me. Yeah, well, no, I, you really nailed that. I, I I was like, well, okay, yeah, that sounds about right. Um, he reminded me a lot. I don't know if you've seen the movie Bridesmaids, but um, Kristen Wiig's character in that, which is a comedy, uh, I thought it was a story of pathos. Like she is really cratering, and her life is falling apart, and. She's trying to project like everything's okay instead of just like reaching out and asking for help. So I was, I, um, I kind of really sympathized with him. Um, you know, he has borrowed money from this old crook. He has to sell his house. His wife left him, but he didn't seem like a bad person. He really reminded me more of like a gambling addict, like someone who believes that like random events, like a new bartender, uh, you know, are going to mean, you know, his luck is changing. So, uh, you know, he has this, he goes from lonely and scared to like I was saying, smugly confident and back. So I, I was curious what inspired you in, in creating uh, this character. And did you feel any sympathy for him? I mean, not to reveal the entire arc of his story here, but. Well, um, yeah, I, I suppose I felt maybe not so much sympathy for him because I felt the trouble he got in, he got himself in that trouble. Um, but I, I also think when when we're creating any character, I mean, nobody is all bad or all good. You know, I think that's probably a little bit more of the type of character you saw back in the 1940s sort of noir where the people were more on the fringes. So they were very um, more, they were slotted more specifically into a certain character type. So, yeah, he's not a bad guy. I think he primarily he just suffers from any ability to really stick to anything and commit. And he was always looking for the quick way out. And he got along that way for a while, and it finally caught up to him. So, yeah, you know, I don't think he's a bad guy. I think he was just not a particularly, like, he never quite grew up kind of guy. Mm, okay. I see. Yeah, it, it I, uh, I, and what happens, like I said, I'm trying not to reveal too much because I would, you know, people should read that uh, story, but it's just like what, like 
his his story, I I just was like, wow, did he really deserve that? Uh, it was like that's that's what I was saying earlier. Like it unfolds like a horror story. Like you know, uh, in the sense of, uh, I think the way I, I I had thought of it was, you know, like finding out someone you've heard rumors about really is a vampire or a werewolf or a, mm-hmm. a, someone to be feared or something. Because it seems like uh, his relationship with that guy Chum, the 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 old uh, Ebor City crook, you know, yeah. is, is is sort of. Uh, like that like you know you hear rumors but you don't really believe like is he really capable of this or is is this something he would really be you know it, it was almost like you you had some of those uh like the way everything escalated so quickly and that you know these horrible things happened to him not just you know in the end but uh but along the way with with the bartender and how everything had happened i um it, it really did seem to be like is that it have some of that moralizing that some of the old horror stories have like, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever read any of those old comics, like tales from the crypt or anything where uh, mm. the hubris of the characters is like gruesomely punished. But Well, and I, I think when it's sort of human nature that we kind of apply our own moral code to the world at large. So if something is beyond what we would consider doing or we, that something that we think is outlandish we we think it's outlandish for everybody mm-hmm. um so when somebody is quite different in their moral code you can as as dale did he found it hard to believe that he was in any in, in any real jeopardy because it was it, he just couldn't comprehend it he couldn't comprehend that um, approach to life, basically, that this that Santo had, um, Chum, mm-hmm. Chum had. So I, um, yeah, I, I was playing a little bit with that. Um, that some things, and they're too hard to believe. Sometimes we just can't believe them. Maybe until it's too late, as it was, perhaps in his case. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, that, that that's 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 a good way of putting it. Um, one final little little question about this, and this is, I hope, not spoiling or revealing anything. Do you, the the sharks that appear in the story, in whatever context they might be, like, did you? <laughs> this is going to seem like mind-numbingly specific, but did you have any idea about like the species of sharks they were? Because you're very because Chum was telling that story at the beginning, which was very specific about that channel near Egmont Key. Which, uh, for those of you listening, is a, is a little island uh, off the coast of St. Petersburg or Tierra Verde down in that area between uh, at the mouth of Tampa Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, did you have any idea about uh, specifically which sharks <laughs> they were? Yeah, I, I did research at the time and have it various times. I can't say I remember all of that now, but that is a very well-known, heavily shark-infested area. Um, I, I just think because of the amount of fish probably running through that area. So it's, that's kind of, as long as we've lived here, that's, we've heard about that. So that's why I chose that location and I did at the time, um, research it. And, um, of course, different times of day, sharks are more active and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a fun part of the story.
anyway, uh, I had one, uh, my final question here, and this is, this is sort of a, a, a more general thing about your work. Do you, you're not a lifelong Floridian, um, you know, you're no. a mid Midwesterner like me, sort of, but, um, but between this story and, and the disappearing, which, um, again, I apologize out there to people who uh, are talking about a novel that you may not have read and isn't the subject directly of this episode. But I feel like you, you really capture the setting well, and, and especially with the disappearing, you examine a, a really raw, painful event in Florida's history. So do you consider yourself a Florida writer? Yeah, I probably... Um consider myself more a Southern writer. Um, as I think, I think The Disappearing is my only one set in Florida, although the book I just finished is also set up in the panhandle. Um, you know, I, I guess I hope to consider myself an author that has a lot of readers. <laughs> that's, that's the um, best kind. But probably, probably more so a Southern writer. Um, but, you know, I, I live in Florida, so if somebody wants to call me a Florida writer, that's fine, too. Yeah. Of course, it might be a, a kind of identity you'd rather avoid altogether, too, or to pigeonhole yourself that way. But, but yeah. Well, we have so many huge writers in Florida. I mean, even in the Tampa Bay area. We mm -hmm. could, so, um, yeah, we, we have tremendous pool of talent in the state. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, indeed. I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I've talked to some of them on this, <laughs> on this mm -hmm. podcast. So yeah, it's, we're, we're lucky that way. So anyway, uh, you have any projects you're working on? I mean, I know you've, you've kind of obliquely discussed, uh, the book you've just finished up or, uh, work that's forthcoming that you'd like to mention. Um, yeah, I just finished up a book right now. My, I'll call it my working title because who knows what will happen. It's called Hug Them Goodbye. And it's uh, set in the panhandle of Florida where it's, it's loosely based on Lake Jackson. For anyone who's familiar with that area, that's up near Tallahassee. And Lake Jackson is like a six, seven square mile lake, um, flat bottom prairie lake that will on occasion spontaneously drain mm -hmm. billions of gallons of water and there's a couple of sinkholes in the bottom that will open up and suck the lake dry and so i've um my book i fictionalized that and in my world it's lake marion and when lake marion drains people die and as the book opens and it's draining for the fourth time in 20 years, the, the town is hunkering down because this time around, one of their citizens, a, a man who grew up in this small town, is now wanted for 19 murders in the two years since he left town. And they're beginning to think maybe he had something to do with those deaths when the lake drained and as it's draining yet again they fear the serial killer is coming back home oh so wow that's my next one and i'm very glad that it's finally done oh when, when can we expect to see it uh I, I don't know that yet but it, it was just a bear to write so i'm uh i'm just this week wrapping it up and a uh, little bit giddy just at being done. Oh, congratulations. No, that's awesome. 
Thank I'm you. definitely going to read that. Thank you. You're like, so, okay. Well, thank you very much. So, Lori, oh, I'm sorry. What? I, I, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Oh yeah. No, you are now a member of the Florida book club. Great. Thanks for attending this meeting of the Florida book club. We have links to purchase Tampa Bay Noir on our website, as well as a link to Lori Roy's own page. Seriously, The Disappearing is worth every penny and every minute you'll spend reading it, even if you've never heard of the Dozier School for Boys. Google it if you haven't, and then do further research. And as you heard here, she has a forthcoming novel that sounds equally sinister and compelling, so keep your eyes peeled for that one's release. Remember to support your local independent bookstores and public libraries. See you at the next meeting.